everybody. <laughs> it's Then Again with Ken and Glenn, the podcast where you hear things from Ken and Glenn. And stuff. And stuff, exactly. Uh, it is October. And, and uh, if any, any of you who know Glenn and I know that October is one of the most beloved months of the year for us because of a very specific day, and that would be the 14th of October, the year 1066. Matter of fact, Glenn, when I first met you, when we were working the joust, it was our discovery that that was a shared password of ours for, for virtue. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to get into anything Glenn and I have online, some variation of October 14th, 1066, because it is the day of... The Battle of Hastings. Ah, the Battle of Hastings, ladies and gentlemen. That is the date when the armies of the invading Duke William of Normandy fought uh, the armies of King Harold II of England in what proved to be one of the most decisive battles and days in history. You know, as historians, we hear the concept of a specific day or a specific battle or a specific event being changing the course of things of history. And, and it's rarely true. It's rarely that one, one thing does change the course. But the Battle of Hastings is one of those things. It is the day where a culture that had existed in England for 500, 500 plus years, years mm -hmm. had become culturally and economically rich, had gained the intellectual prowess to be known as one of the most diverse and well-educated areas in the entire continent. I mean, kings in, in Europe were getting Anglo-Saxon scholars into their court mm -hmm. so that they could do these things. The stories, Beowulf, the mm -hmm. language, it doesn't come to a close that day, but it's, it's the beginning of the end. When linguistics talk about the evolution of language, especially the language we're speaking now, English, sounds the way it does because of, very specifically, Harold losing not only the battle, but his life on October 14th, 1066. There, there are few instances where an entire power structure the elite leaders of Anglo-Saxon England are wiped out in one battle. That rarely happens. But all the strong men, Harold, his brothers, gone in an afternoon. So when they're gone, there's no one to continue leading a resistance against the invading William. And so William and his language and his culture, Norman French. And his particular variety of the church. And his particular variety of the church come to dominate England. And so, like Glenn says, it's not that everyone stopped speaking a certain way or stopped worshiping a certain way on that day, but the power structure that told them to changed completely in a day. Yes, one day. And, and this is the thing. He talked about the aristocracy. Now, Ken and I know this because we're nerds, but, but <laughs> most people, especially our friends the Brits, think of 1066 and all that and October 14th and Battle of Hastings, and that is the crucial day. But... There were two other battles, all within about a month and a half of each other, before Hastings, that made the difference. This well, I guess, well, let's, well let's, let's give them a little bit of background to begin yes. with. Why were there battles to begin with? Edward the Confessor, who'd been king for the past 20 years, dies without an heir. And that's, that's the thing that sets everything in problem. motion. He dies in January of 1066, and since he has no direct heir, and England is kind of odd in that, even if he had a, a designated heir, he's not automatically going to become king. The wise men, the Witan, the wise council, elects the next king. And so it's usually someone of the royal family, usually someone related to the king, but it doesn't always have to it be. Is, it is not a set in stone. This right. Is, this so, is so, with, so with Edward the Confessor dying without uh, in the lead presumed heir, the door is open for other people to claim the throne, one of whom is William of Normandy, who claims that years before Edward had promised him the kingship, 
and has well, a he has a very, very tenuous. tenuous it's a through uh, it's a it's a through marriage, not by blood claim exactly. on royal English blood. And then there's there's Harold, of course, who is simply very powerful and is the king's second man. And most everyone likes and him. most everyone likes Harold, and he's proven to be a very good sub king in the interim. And then, of course, there are the Vikings and Harold Hadrada up in Norway. Uh, people refer to him as the last grand Viking, last great Viking leader. You know, he has an interest, as does the Danish king. Although the Danish king is Harold's cousin, so he says, no, nah, I'm not going to press a claim. But Harold Hadrada doesn't even have a tenuous claim by marriage like William. He's just a Viking. He's going to take it. <laughs> because and, that's what you do. And of all these people, he's probably the most well-known warrior of the age. Absolutely. He had served in Byzantium. He had been in all these different wars. He is this, apparently, according to the Chronicles, this towering, giant, incredibly tough fighter. And well, his name is Hadrada. Hadrada, hard, hard ruler. Yes, hard ruler, hard <laughs> counsel. So yeah. the, and, and so when he plans to come over, and he has the help of her, too many heralds. Yeah. Harold, the English guy's yeah. brother, has, has him helping. So, again, we're, we're summarizing all this very much in a nutshell. Harold, from Scandinavia, comes into the north of the country, defeats an English army of the north where all the northern aristocrats and their soldiers fight and are killed and sits up there. Harold, the English guy, goes north with the English army, defeats Harold Hardrada, kills him, also gets a lot of loss in his army, then hears that William has landed in the south when he's in the north, so he has to turn around. After having marched all the way across England, fought a major battle, he now has to march south again mm -hmm. to meet William, and that's how we get to the Battle of Hastings. Right. And, and and those two previous battles had basically at least half the, the nobles, the aristocracy, had been killed defending England in those battles. So when you get to Hastings, they basically have, as far as the aristocracy goes, everyone they have left right. of that field. Right. And anyone who's worth anything is there. Yes. There's a couple of young earls, uh, Edwin and Morcar, who are still up north, but they're young, they're inexperienced, they're not powerful. They're brand new. They're brand new. It's, it's the powerful that are still there at the Battle of Hastings. Exactly. And it's not like there was this grand coalition or plan between William and Hardrada. Evidently, from all the available evidence, neither one of those armies knew the other was attacking or when. No one, yes. You know, it, it's, it's a matter of fact, you know, Her now, Harold Godwinson, King of England, knew William was coming because William said he was coming. <laughs> and then Harold had been camped out on the south coast of England all summer long waiting for him. It's, it's Harold Hadrada appearing out of nowhere that uh, there was the unexpected thing. And then it was so late in the year uh, by the time that uh, Harold had gone up and defeated Hadrada, you know, the modern calendar is about two weeks off what it was back then. It was well into October when all of this is happening. And the season, you know, was later. It was relatively well believed that it was too late in the year for an invasion fleet to come across the channel. As a matter of fact, William had been laying up in ports in France. He'd been trying to get across Really for getting weeks desperate about for the, weeks, the wind the was not blowing. Yeah. Right. And so, and so it blows him over, though, in a storm in late September is how he gets over. Yeah, and, and, and it, the, the story, I, I totally believe this story. So the, <laughs> they, they set out, and, you know, going across the channel this time, even in the boats of the day, is only going to take about 12 hours. Right. So they finally get the wind with them. They sail out. The storm comes. 
the storm clears, the sun comes up, William looks around, and his fleet is gone. <laughs> I can see nothing. It's gone. Not another ship in sight. And, and, it, and you know, it, it's not like, oh, now I have to invade by myself, but that was basically his entire, he had just blown his what? All of his money. Yeah. He'd call in all of his favors. He had everything to get yeah, that army this, together. Let's talk about real quickly how massive an undertaking this was. I mean, it's not like Normandy was a seagoing duchy. It's not like William's people were seafaring people. When he says, oh, I'm going to invade England, everyone's like, in what? They have to literally build a fleet from scratch. Build a fleet from scratch. He also doesn't have near enough men. So he's got to turn to the French, to the Bretons, to the Flemings. It's not just Normans coming across. It's a, quote, multinational force not all of whom necessarily want William to win, but they want their contingent that's with William to win. Yes. So there are, there are certain dynamics at play. And, and, and what kind of incentive would all these people come yeah. fight for someone else? Because England is the richest prize in Europe at this moment. And William has made it known he's going to give out land because that's really the only thing he has to promise people right. is lands in England. He doesn't have enough of his own lands to promise and reward. He doesn't have enough of his own riches, to, but he can darn sure, well, once we conquer England, yes. you'll have an earldom, you'll have an earldom. So the, the, the one thing that the English are most passionate about, their land, he's going to, he's going to give away. away. You, you want to talk about a way to unite the people <laughs> against you? Well done, William. Well done. You know, when you talk about, Glenn, you know, the, the, the march up, the fight, and then the march back, a lot of modern historians and scholars, and really some at the time, say, well, you know, because of all the losses, he didn't have enough men at the Battle of Hastings, or he should have retreated and, you know, waged a more protracted campaign. His tactics were wrong. You know, there's a whole lot of things you can say after the fact. But part of what a king is supposed to do is defend his realm and his people vigorously and immediately. And... William has just demonstrated his ability to do that up north. If some of the stories and chronicles are to be believed of the parley that happened before the Battle of Stamford Bridge, where he does offer his brother Tostig pardon and his old earl back, but Harold's got to leave or he can die. You know, that, that was, you know, those were the yeah, terms. Well, the story where Tostig says, well, what do I get if I come back over to you? He says, I'll give you your earldom back. What from my ally Harold? Six feet of English earth, or perhaps more, as he is taller than other <laughs> Exactly, <men>. exactly. <laughs> and and Harold has ridden up to the to the data, to the Norwegian line uh, anonymously. Hadrada doesn't know it's Harold, and then right. he says, "Who was that guy? That was my brother. Ah, brave man, because <laughs> you know, he was." But one of the things that's chroniclers even at the time talked about with Harold was that he was a good negotiator. Mm -hmm. He was a good facilitator. He knew when to fight and could do it quite well, but, that, that, but it's different with William. He knows William's not the kind of guy that he's going to be able to negotiate with. Right. He knows he's got to meet him in battle fast and furious and, and, and not give him any chance to move past the area of his beachhead. So, you know, I, I'm not one of those who agree with the scholars who say he, he attacked too precipitously, nor that he didn't have enough men, because as the events of the battle itself show, I mean, it's the longest battle in England up until that time. Right. He has the men, Yeah. but after the battle and after the severe losses suffered by the English, it's the, it's the leadership, right. it's the lack of leadership that does the Anglo-Saxons in. And I think one of the things that, that you can't downplay, this is in the Chronicles 
especially the Norman ones that try to justify the conquest afterwards, but also in some of the Anglo-Saxon. This is an age of faith. Yeah. And yeah. people believe, you don't have to believe yourself, but you have to accept that they believe and believe strongly. And if, you, if, if something's to be believed, then William has gotten the blessings of the Pope. Depending on what you believe from the, chron- from the Norman Chronicles, right. the Bayou Tapestry, Harold Godwinson has sworn on sacred relics that he would support William's claim to the throne. And I'm sure that as king, Harold is thinking to himself, this is in the hands of God. If I am in the right, sense, yeah. we cannot lose. Right, right. So why not fight now not and fight stop now? The, the, right. the slaughter and the pillaging that the right. Normans are doing? If, if God's on our side, well, then we can't lose. And, and which they are doing very, very consciously to, to provoke Harold. Right. I mean, because, you, that's what you do. Because William that, thinks God is on his ex, side, ex, too. Exactly, exactly. But you, know, you mentioned the, the tapestry. For those of you who don't know, it's a 224-foot-long piece of linen with embroidered uh, wool uh, figures and, and scenes of the, of the battle and the conquest that was, as to the best of our knowledge, made sometime in the early 1070s after after the battle. Europe's and it's propaganda piece. It is. Oh, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. He said the guy who's only seen the replica of it. <laughs> We've seen a lot of but pictures. We, in, oh my God, in our so books. many pictures, so many books. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this what you're referring to, the, the swearing of an oath, it is widely conceded by even the, the Anglo-Saxon chroniclers that Harold did journey to Normandy sometime in 1064. Now, the purpose of that visit is disputed by, by both camps, and exactly what happened is disputed, but all sides agree that Harold did swear something. Now, Harold was under considerable duress because the way he got to Normandy, if it was someplace he planned on going, his ship got blown off course, he got captured by Guy of Ponthieu, who held him for ransom. It you know, seems that he was William's prisoner. It seems that he was William's prisoner. Even if he had intended to go to William to begin with, he arrived as a prisoner. And so he kind of is under duress. So this oath that he makes, which the Normans claim is, the Norman claim is actually that he promised to make William king and in the interim provide a fort and soldiers. And that's just, I mean, now this is one of the chroniclers. Because right, right. once again, there's two or three different chroniclers saying things. That complicates things. But even the promising for him to be king, as we've said, that's not how English kingship works. Right. You're elected by the Witan. Harold can promise to support him, and that's the most he can do. And he may well have done that. We don't know. And there's no way William's going to... Yeah. He doesn't understand Anglo-Saxon customs and morals. And law. And, 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 and if Harold says, well, that's not how it's done, and William will say, I don't care. I don't care. That's how you're going to do it. Exactly. Because that's how William rolls. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's even one of the Anglo... And, and the reason I, I place some stock in, in that sort of thing is I think it's one of the Anglo-Saxon chronicles that in a, sort of an offhand comment says about Harold... That he was it, often it, too free with his, with his swearings. Wearing. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. He, he swore too much and right. shouldn't have. Right, right. And that means like swear, like I'm going to do something, not right. exclamation point, ampersand, ampersand, right. hashtag. And in this swear. case, in this case, Harold may very well have said, well, of course I'll swear to this because it gets me out of this situation. And the Lord above will know that this is not, that because of the false place I've been placed in, my oath will hold no value. Right. But it didn't matter when it came to no. the execution of things. Now, like we say, that uh, scene we're talking about is uh, embroidered in glorious wool and linen on the Bayou Tapestry. And as we've given you a little bit of uh, history of, of what that is. And of course, we should mention that the Bayou Tapestry was neither made in Bayou, nor is it a tapestry. <laughs> Hence the name Bayou it, Tapestry. It may have been made- a couple of different places, but none of them were by you. None of them were by you. So the tapestry is actually technically an embroidery. It is a linen background 
that has figures and landscapes and mythical beasts and words uh, stitched in in wool, which is something that the English were known for. Opus Angli, the, the, the English work, was mm-hmm. what the, their needlework was referred to because it was so good. So it's that sort of thing, not a tapestry. And as far as the bayou part, well, that's because when the tapestry first came to historical or scholarly knowledge, it was at Bayou Cathedral, which is a cathedral that Odo, William's brother, did commission. And and it had been there at least Least. uh, since the 1400s. Yes, since the 1400s, exactly. When scholars have, have analyzed the actual thread, the type of dye, even the style of writing, that is stitched into it. All of the things together really strongly suggest that it was made in the southwest of England, most likely in Kent, and probably at a monastery or uh, a cloister in, uh, did I say Canterbury just now? In Canterbury. You, you yeah. say Canterbury, Kent, Canterbury, yes. Canterbury in Kent, yeah, yes. but yeah, specifically Canterbury in Kent. And once again, there, there are a couple of religious houses there, uh, one of which was overseen by uh, a bishop who was a friend of Odo's. And it was, and the house he was in, in charge of was one that had access to nuns who did embroidery. And uh, both uh, Vital and Waldard, the two, the two, two of the knights that are named in the tapestry, mm-hmm. were retainers of Odo's that, yes. in Kent. So that you start area. putting those things together. It's like, okay, it was probably made in Kent, probably at the behest of or for, but maybe the behest of Odo. Now, for what reason? Who knows? Was he, did he commission this as a gift to his half-brother William, who he was often on bad terms with? If so, why are there so many slyly pro-English things in it? Were those, because well, there are a lot of... There, there uh, are, and, and, and Odo appears more prominently than one would think he would unless he had some sort of hand in exactly. it. Exactly. Really, the, his presence in, in the, I mean, there's one scene in the tapestry where it's, you know, him astride the horse with his baculum or club, and he's, and it says, you know, Odo rallies the young knights, and he's doing all heroic things. Very thing. heroic. Very it's heroic. <laughs> Nothing else, no other chronicler depicts Odo as heroic except perhaps the one he commissioned himself, which also is in character with the man. And take and take note, you know, classic, classic Norman. Odo's a bishop. He's a man of God. He's supposed to be a churchman, and here he is in armor, yeah. running around, <laughs> whopping in a whooping, killing Saxons left and right. Now there is another very prominent person in some of the battle scenes, and that's Eustace of Bologna. And Eustace and Odo in other chroniclers appear to be, they get along pretty well. Eustace, however, rebels against William a couple of years after the... Everyone rebels against uh, exactly, William. Well, well, including Odo. And so there's some speculation that the, the tapestry was actually a gift from Eustace to Odo, or Odo to Eustace, either way, sort of, sort of uh, commiserating their mutual... We, we were so heroic at the Battle of Hastings, and look, see, we're, look we're, at us. we're the real heroes. I mean, sure, William, but we're the real heroes. And, and, you know, that's as plausible as anything else. The fact that the tapestry was shown and known contemporaneously, th- there, are, there are a couple of poets. One poet in particular writes a poem to uh, one of William's daughters a few years after the, the conquest in which he, and it's one of these courtly, you know, French-Norman conventions of, ah, my young princess, here is the thing I will tell you, and it could be as true as this tapestry that's on your wall. And then he proceeds to describe things that sound exactly like the tapestry, the bio-tapestry, but then he also then imagines other scenes in it. And so what's cool about that is if you take the text of his poem and you match it up with the tapestry, you're like, okay, this guy saw the real tapestry. He had had to have seen the tapestry. Here's clearly a made-up scene. 
Okay, here's a scene he probably saw, and that's one of the ways they know how the Bayou Tapestry ends, because as it exists now, it's torn. It's missing, is it like the last, last 20 feet? Something like that, feet? yeah, yeah. And in this poet that I'm talking about, in his romanticized version, he actually describes the end of the, the tapestry, because the tapestry goes through, oddly enough, Edward telling Harold not to go on a journey, Harold going on a journey, all the things that happened over in Normandy, him coming back, and Edward dying, and then all the things Quote, that happened. Unquote, seizing the throne. Seizing the throne. Although, interestingly enough, in the, in the stitching, it has... Edward touching fingers with Harold on his deathbed, which yes. clearly signifies I'm giving my realm to you. So, but anyway, so, so it goes through, you know, all those things, and then it gets to the battle, and then it breaks off that the tear in the modern tapestry is right after the end of the, the Battle of Hastings. But this poet describes another scene where William is being crowned King of England in Westminster. And that's probably what that last section... And, uh, and it makes sense because the first scene on the tapestry is, of course, Edward sitting in, in radiance on the, the throne right. and all the things. So it seems like the, the, balance. the symmetry of it would yeah. have William over here. And, you know, that, that also refle reflects reality because after the battle, William had defeated the English army. He had killed the aristocracy. And the thing is, now he's ready to take England, but there are so many, so much of the leadership that's being killed. Who does he accept the surrender from? Well, and... There's, there's no one to go and say, I'm in charge right. now. So he... Asked Plus, William doesn't necessarily know that there's not going to be more resistance. That, that's true. Potentially, England has, you know, 50,000 more men it can call up. If there's someone to if do there's it, someone to do it, and so he goes on a, he, you know, London's the capital, more or less, as yeah. we as we think of a capital. That's where the the important governmental stuff was. William takes off on a very circuitous route yes. through the south of England, goes north of London, and swings like to the northeast of London, and finally comes in that way. And the only person left to basically hand over things to him is the Anglo-Saxon Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the closest thing the nation has right. to a leader at this point. There is someone who technically is in line for the English throne, but that little boy, he's like 10 years old, and he wisely says, I'm out because <laughs> exactly. I want to live. <laughs> exactly. um, so William's crowned Christmas Day in Westminster as King of the English, and then all the things happen. But it's interesting to note that that circuitous route going through. William almost dies because yeah. the entire army catches dysentery <laughs> like two days after the battle. And yeah, because you know, local don't drink the water, don't drink the local <laughs> water. And the entire army is sick, and William is in a tent crapping himself to death. <laughs> you know, and, and and Ken and I were talking the other day. What if William had died? Yeah. After that. William's no longer king. That means that somebody in William's army is going to try to be king, and there are a lot of people there that will get yep. into a, a real big fight, a knife fight in yeah. the dark. Yeah, exactly. Tr trying to become king. That you know, historians love to watch. Yeah, exactly. You know, would, would William's brother have? have you know, he would have tried to come forth. He used to say Bologna when he went, I'm the one who's descended from Charlemagne. I'll be taking right. this country. Thank and you. The king of France yeah. might have said, no, 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 no. So that would have been a. There's, yeah. there's your alternate history novel, folks. So we'll just write that. I will be glad to prove it for you. <laughs> exactly. But the, but the beauty of this is, the, the thing that's so compelling about this is that this is, you know, we talk about how decisive a day it was for what it does to entire cultures and countries. It's also just a basic human story with everything. Everything is there. There are love stories in this day. There are double crossings in this day. There are betrayals in this day. You know, the whole panoply of, what people can do are encapsulated in this day and in this and in this conquest because another thing that seems to be indicated by the chroniclers is that Harold and William, when they met, 
kind of liked each other. Everything you know, we can tell, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, and, you can, and you can kind of see that happen. Yeah. They had a great admiration. Yeah. William takes Harold on him to go campaigning. On, on campaigning. And then, and, then, and then Harold rescues two of William's men from quicksand, helps take part in a siege. I mean, he demonstrates... I'm a pretty intense individual myself, William. And, you know, and some of the chroniclers, the Norman chroniclers, actually say that, that William and, uh, and Harold had decided that Harold would wed one of William's daughters yeah. when she was of age. Even, even the Norman chronicles, they say that Harold stole the crown. But none of them that I can think of say Harold was a sneaky, bad person. It, it was just... Just that crown thing. Just <laughs> that crown that. thing. Uh, but yeah, so everyone seemed to admire him. William didn't get quite as much praise. He led a hard life. His, his father is murdered. There are attempts on his life, several attempts on his life as he's growing up. So he, that he and his best friend, when they're teenagers, hide under a bed while his guardian is hacked to death by armored men looking for William. Yeah. I mean, that's... And they're under the bed hiding, waiting for the guys to find them. That's a tough way that's, to That's going to make a guy... Exactly. Exactly. And, and so William, he does what he feels he has to do to protect his and to get his due, because that's how he's had to survive. But it's interesting that uh, you know, on the very site, the, the, the by God's site, where 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 Harold fell that day. You know, a few years later, William comes back, goes to the site, and says, "Build a church right here where Harold died. I'm funding. I'm paying for a church to be built as penance for killing Harold and for all of these English." And once again, Glenn, what you talked about earlier, these were people of a certain kind of faith. William certainly doesn't have to do that because of the popular opinion of the people. He no, could he care, won't. he could not care less about that, but he certainly realizes the God he believes is going to judge him harshly and he'd better do penance here in the earthly realm. And so now because of that, you know, the magnificent abbey at the town of Battle is built right. and you know, you can to this day go to the spot where the high altar stood and, and oh. there's where Harold if died. You, folks, if you haven't been there. Oh, and we Kim, have. Kim and I got to go on the great, <laughs> the great pilgrimage. Uh, days there. It really is. It really is something because, you know, we look obsessively, and I'm going to say obsessively, we look obsessively at, at, we both have the big full color plate books with the full size tapestry in it and da da da. And it's amazing, like like there's, in one part of the tapestry and in several of the chronicles, they talk about this stand made by some English thanes on this little hillock about halfway down from the main hill. And it's there in real life. It's still there. And when you're you're standing on that sacred ground at six in the morning and the sun is just coming up, and there's mist, and there's the very hill where a scene you've seen in your mind a thousand times from the tapestry played out, and you're looking at that's where it happened. Right there. It's just amazing. And it's see, just Ken, amazing. Ken and I got to go to one of the reenactments too. So yes, there, indeed. there Ken and I are in armor, <laughs> marching across marching. the field, oh, smashing into shields. <laughs> it's pretty it's, intense. It's, it's pretty intense. It's pretty religious. And we went over there and we went to all the, you know, I don't, you didn't make it to Fulford though, did you? I did not make it to Fulford. Didn't make it to Fulford. Uh, but the, the Fulford and Stamford Bridge are the two battles. You did, you did get us to Stamford. Yeah. My poor wife. <laughs> we, went, we went all the way up there, and the whole day was dedicated to Fulford and Stamford, which, from her perspective, and she'll tell you, was mostly just walking around outside near trailer parks, because that's what's where these that's that's where the battlefields are now. And that, that her beautiful trip to England, we had all planned together, beds and breakfast and museums. We spent a whole day walking around outside, look at, looking at dirt. <laughs> And it was glorious. <laughs> Going, why, that's the very trailer park where Harold Andrade's men attacked. <laughs> it was quite a surprise. Uh, it was, it, 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 no one expected it. <laughs> no one expected it. All right, but uh, 
Uh, we should probably uh, wind this thing down, but uh, you know, we, we have to leave since we've made a big deal about the changes. One of the things that I love about, or love teaching about this day, as you know, you've heard me every time we talk about the Battle of Hastings, is the English language and the changes. Because that's the day that English starts on its path to sounding like it does now, instead of the way it sounded that day, which was something like, That's actual Anglo-Saxon. It means, uh, thought shall be harder, heart the keener, mood shall be more, though our might lessens. And that's from a poem uh, about some English warriors fighting Viking invaders, but it's a perfectly appropriate quote for the Battle of Hastings because the, the Anglo-Saxon fighters had this ethos of when you know you're losing, fight harder. And it's just, it's something about that, that grim Germanic, and also that, that even that English stiff upper lip that, yeah. concept that, arrives, that survives to this day is, well, the going's tough, well then we, I suppose we better get going then, yes, well. When the fall is all there is left, left it matters the, the most. Mo exactly, and so I, that quote, me in old English right there, I like to throw out for this day, but then also follow it up with, that then evolves, but directly as a result of the Norman French coming in, the Norman French starts mixing up with that old English until with Chaucer you've got things like Juan de Rapro with his Shurisuta, the drought of March had passed into the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch the cure, of which virtue engendered is the fluor, which is more understandable. And then you wind up with the grandeur of, you know, that finally the crucible of language boils away all the excess, and you wind up with the glorious language of Shakespeare, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. And we have that language and the language we're speaking now in this very podcast because of the events of October 14th, 1066. God save the king. Whichever, God save the king. Whichever one makes whichever, it. Whichever, whoever that might be. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center.